Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, work, coffeebar.com. What's up, my firsties? Was that natural? It didn't feel natural. This is piggybacking off the last episode. Let's try it again. What up, firsties, and welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host, and if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 176, and my guest this week is none other than Kurt Ballou. He is the guitarist in Converge. He is a record producer who has recorded some of my personal favorite albums of the hardcore metal genre. Um, He's a hell of a guy. I'm lucky to call him a friend. I have toured with him a few times. And, you know, this is one of those circumstances where, um, you know, though we do know each other and we are friendly and all of that sort of stuff, it's uh, it's hard for me to separate that I'm also just a big fan. I, I have that kind of relationship with everyone in Converge where before I know it, once I'm around these people is I'm asking them very specific nerdy questions or picking their brain about stuff that I've always been curious of because they've provided so much um, wonder and excitement for me through the music that they've made or been a part of that. Uh, I don't know. It's like an endless supply of great stories. And everyone in this band is like fantastic storytellers. Um, I've had Jake on previously. This is uh, my first time with Kurt. Um, And I think you'll hear all of these wonderful stories in this episode. I will let you know right now, by the way, if you are new here, that there is a bonus episode available right now where Kurt answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Uh, If you subscribe for like three bucks, you can hear that bonus episode plus all the other bonus episodes. If you subscribe for just a little bit more, you yourself can find out who's coming on soon. Submit your own questions and uh, and hear your questions get answered. It's a cool thing that we do over there. One more time. That is patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon You can also find the link in the show description for this episode. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you are listening to this, please do so. Leaving a positive rating and review, all of these things help, and it would mean so much. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with the shreddingest, the driest, the smartest guy in the room. Here's Kurt Ballou. 
Good morning, Kurt. It's so nice to see you. How are you? Good morning, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Uh, I haven't seen you for a few months, but uh, it's great to see your smiling face. Yeah, super happy uh, uh, you asked me to um, to be a part of this. This is great. I'm so excited. You're someone that um, people keep bringing up to me, being like, when are you going to have Kurt on? When are you going to have Kurt on? And um, it's well, the start of the year, and I said, you know what? It's time. It's time to you know, bring that man on. Speaking of the start of the year, I don't want to like derail the whole interview, but I had a really good first ever yesterday. Talk to me about it. What was Polar it? Polar plunge. I went and jumped in the ocean on New Year's Day. It's the first time I've ever done it. I've always seen like Andy Hurley posting videos of doing it every New Year's. Right. And like, I don't know why it just came to me like yesterday morning. I was like, we should go jump in the ocean. And oh like, I got, my, I got my kids stoked about the idea. Like my daughter fully went in. My son just did his feet. But like, yeah, my, my wife's done it a bunch of times too. Um, oh, so yeah, that was, that was my first ever, and I'll, I'll, I think I'm going to keep doing it. It was good. It felt as great. A, as a start of the year situation, as like a tradition? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is like, that's the whole like polar bear club thing, I guess. Oh, you know, okay. The, the, not the band, the, um, you know, the, <laughs> right. I, I want to say it like started, started in maybe like Brooklyn or Queens or something. There was like a polar bear club where everyone goes and like jumps in the, uh, jumps in the ocean on the, on New Year's day. Oh my God. Uh, is this, is, has it been snowing there or no? no we yeah we we got like one little dusting but no it's, it's cold today it's it's you know it's below freezing but we haven't had any snow yet this year oh my god uh what was the drying off process in that situation because i imagine <laughs> once you do it you're like that's yeah, the worst I did part <laughs> yeah exactly well, then it's like oh good thing the, the beach is like not very busy so like like i just kind of like hid behind a rock and, got, <laughs> and wrapped a towel around me and got changed yeah but yeah, like, yeah. You know, I, I went out there, I'm like totally bundled up and stuff. And I could get all my, get my clothes off. Of this, like the, the second my bare feet touched the sand, I'm like, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, I'll, in the winter, I'll like go out. Uh, my family keep the house pretty hot. So I'm always like, I'm always like pretty hot in the house. So like in the winter, I'll like, you know, I'll go out in my bare feet in the driveway to like take out the trash or something like that. Right, right. Um, right. Or in like a t-shirt or something. Um, and I was wearing like a, like a kind of like a heavy duty American giant uh, shirt yesterday so it didn't feel bad like even like even like getting down to my swimsuit wasn't that bad and then you know obviously hit the water um and it was like pretty intense but yeah. then there's like like i've been doing cold plunges at the gym lately so i'm kind of used to that and there's like that euphoric feeling that happens when you get out of that so like even though the air was cold just the water is so much colder that when you come yeah. out of the water, like it does feel euphoric and it does, I wouldn't say it feels warm, but it, it, you know, there's like a euphoria that, that happens. And then like the process of getting your clothes on without getting everything covered in sand yeah. is a little tricky. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, we put, we, we pulled it off. My daughter like just kept going back. She had a blanket. She'd come up and she'd like bundle herself up and then like run back to the water and jump in and then like run back up. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, kept I'm sure. It. As a, as a relatively new father, right? It's been, your kids are quite the, a few, like Yeah, my son turned seven a few months ago. And my daughter will turn four in two weeks. Okay. It's just astonishing how resilient kids are, right? I mean, I'm not a father. About some but things. Just, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. But I mean, just, yeah. I mean, um, the way that, you know, scraping a knee will be a big deal for like, you know, 20 minutes, but then they're just fine. You know what I'm saying? It's it, it's just it's one of those things that have, I I think about with my friends' kids and things like that. Just how seemingly resilient we are. Whereas, like, also when we're you know as soon as you get older, everything gives you a stomach ache. Whereas a kid, you can just eat anything and it seems fine. 
Um, so yo, Kurt, so are you, I know yes. you're, you're from Massachusetts originally, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, it's weird. I've like never lived more than like half an hour from where I live right now. Okay. Um, I mean, I've, you know, I've been all over the world, but that's like, I want to say, you know, one of my big life's regrets is like not having lived anywhere else, but there's always been like a thing that's been keeping me here. Um, that would be like too major of an upheaval to, um, to go live somewhere else. But I get, I get that fix just from traveling. That's what I was going to ask you if if the fact that you toured as much as you did just sort of scratched that itch enough because obviously oh, starting a studio that does cement you into a place right yeah for sure I mean yeah like convert started beat when I was in high school right and then also right. like the best school that I got into was in Boston and my mother was an alma mater uh, or yeah alma mater that's not an alumnus and um, so I got uh, like a grant to go to school there and I didn't really want to quit the band so that meant like sticking sticking close to home at that point and then like i wasn't a great student but i got a great job offer that was close to there too so it didn't make sense to leave at that point and i mean i mean also like the early days of of converge and being in bands like the idea that like someone moved away meant the band was over totally right now three of us live close by and then ben our drummer lives in california and like it doesn't end the band but like you know, we broke up in 1994 because Jeff Feinberg, our original bass player, moved to Montreal. It was like four hours away. You know, we were just like, oh, we're, we actually, actually, no, he's not our original bass player. He used to, was the original other guitar player. Our original bass player, Bobby Lord, who's actually pretty active in like podcast stuff and like composition for Gimlet Media now. Um, like Bobby went on vacation with his family for like a week to Cape Cod. We were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, <laughs> are we going to break up? <laughs> like, right. Because I mean, we used to play like four or five days a week um and so we ended up like getting another bass player i mean he wasn't like in the same kind of musical mindset as the rest of us anyway um but yeah it's like weird weird shit like that um i I just kind of felt tied and then you know i started the studio and then there was just there was just like always a thing tying me to to this place and um, if you had a choice to move anywhere where would where do you think you would have gone do you think you would have been like a west coast person or just another part of the I east mean, coast i don't know i feel like i could i could carve out my niche really anywhere that i had to i mean i'd love to live in the uk uh sometime um i would i've always been really drawn to pittsburgh architecturally like i've, mm-hmm. I've always had like a you know grew, grew up with a father who was a machinist and was i was a, a biomedical engineer but in a former life. And, you know, prior to that, uh, I'd got a degree in aerospace engineering. So I've always been interested in like design stuff, like mechanical, physical design stuff. And architecture was something that I, when I was a little kid, I thought that I would do architecture as a career. And so I've always been interested in that. And I think I find like, um, Pittsburgh really interesting architecturally, like they, ha- you know, they built a city in a place that was like not conducive to building a city if it weren't for the fact of like, you know, the intersection of the rivers there um, and, and the, the steel industry or the iron industry. Um, so there's a lot of like interesting design choices with, with regards to like city planning that, that happened there too. And it's also really interesting to see these cities that are, were at a time an, a really affluent place and they have the sort of the design features of the accoutrement, uh, the detail in the, in the buildings of a really affluent place, but isn't that way anymore. You know, right. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, like places like Detroit and, and in Pittsburgh and Albany that have like fallen into disrepair, but still have that like level of 
of thought and craftsmanship in the, in the design of the city that that remains under that layer of of detritus i find that really interesting yeah like you see the aspirations and the initial thought and then just the way that the world works it 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 didn't pan out um no, that's interesting. Uh, well, I think it did pan out for a time. For a time, just, of course. That time ended like before my time. Right, of course. Um, so you, the first question I usually ask musicians is, uh, when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house by your parents or anything like that, but something that you found that gave you a sense of identity. Gave me a sense of identity. I'm not really sure. I mean, I remember always having like toy instruments around. Like my, my dad was into music and, and played some guitar in a band a little bit, but like what music was, he got, he got distracted by motorcycles and music wasn't like a big part of my upbringing. Okay. But we always did have little instruments around. Like I remember I had this weird like thing that like you held it like a guitar, but it was like a keyboard kind of, well, it just had all these colored buttons on it that made, that made sounds, but it was like a yeah. stick. And so like, I played that all the time and my dad would always build me like rubber band guitars. So like just basically like a stick and a shoebox with like rubber bands stretched across the shoebox, and it would just kind of bang on those things. And then, you know, and then later I had like a little portable turntable and obviously like learned how to record scratch on that like <laughs> not not in the way that like you know like yeah you know, hip-hop people did later but like just the way that like a kid messes around with, with things like and the reason why my record player is packed up right now uh you know <laughs> i'll set i'll set that back up when they're when they're like a little bit older and i can not s stress so much about my records getting trashed totally yeah uh, but uh but yeah like what what uh do you remember the first things that like caught your ear that you were into musically like did you find because like, as a young person sometimes like pop is something that they connect to because it's like so catchy yeah it was stuff. just what, it was just what was on the radio right. um and I, I remember thinking that radio stations were the ones that produced content so <laughs> you were um, a forward thinker because i feel like well, that's how it is like, no i mean that's not how i would have framed it at the time but you know i remember like hearing like the eagles and the Eagles were played on WROR. And so if I wanted to hear the Eagles, I had to listen to WRR because ROR, because that was the that was who made that content, right? The way that right. like a, you know, a TV station makes content and now yeah. like streamers make content. Like, wouldn't it be crazy if like Spotify was creating musical content? I mean, and give not it about curating six content? <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> They'll just have AIs replacing all of us. Um, but uh yeah, so I remember I remember thinking about it that way. Um and, um, you know, I do remember like the, I, I do remember really like I had a, a, one of my best friends growing up, Rob, um, his family always had got technology first. And so the way that I started like amassing my own music collection was like either taping stuff from his family. Cause they had the, like the very first CD player, but they didn't have a tape deck hooked up to it or anything like that. So like if I wanted to tape his CDs, I remember like one of the first CDs of his that I taped was weird Al in three, uh, in three D I think it's called three D. Yeah. Um, and, uh, still, still love weird Al, but, um, you know, I had like a little handheld, um, tape recorder, like the, like the kind of like, you know, like, a, like the desktop tape recorder that someone would use in an office for taking notes. Like totally. I had one of those, like a radio shack special, and I would just like hold that up to his stereo and record that way. You know, I also would like record the radio at my house that way. Um, and then, um, or 
the other thing I would do is I would actually go to the library and like rent LP or not rent, but borrow LPs from my library. Like I got into the band Boston that way. I remember getting um, Twisted Sister from my library and um, a bunch of other stuff that I don't recall right now. But yeah, I would, I would just like tape that stuff with my little like, uh, you know, mono desktop cassette. <laughs> right. Recorder. Yeah. 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 You know, eventually I, you know, I, I figured out how to like, how to record stuff directly. And, that, and then when I, when I got like a real like component um, stereo system and had like a cassette deck that could record, I, that also became my first guitar amp because, you know, if you put it on record pause, you plugged a guitar into the mic input, then you could play your guitar through the stereo. So that was like the first guitar amp I ever used. And so it's like tweeters and everything. And like, you know, if you want a distortion, you just like cranked up the record level and it's playing through like the stereo speakers with the tweeters. And so it's like full, it sounds horrible. Um, or it sounds horrible in like a, yeah, <laughs> like, a objective, like a, like a subjective way. But, um, but you know, no, wow, it's like, it sounds unconventional. I didn't yeah, think you could you that. do that. I didn't know you could do that. That's, did you discover that? And you that can also do like, own? you can also do, yeah, you can also, yeah, you just figure that shit out fucking around. You know, and like headphones, like these headphones we're wearing, like it's just, it's a dynamic microphone working in reverse essentially. So you can use the headphones as a microphone, you know? So we used to put them on like a Mohawk, like um, with the one, one driver in front of your mouth and you can just like plug that into a mic input. And I would do that on like a set deck and like, you know, scream into that thing and make oh my it God. racket. Yeah. I wish I had some like tapes of, of myself you know also like tapes tapes were money right so everything everything was money so like tapes were money so like you know i, I wouldn't like hang on to recordings that i made i would just keep taping over them and whatever i need you know, if i needed to record something i would just grab any old tape i'd grab like i'd grab dollar bin tapes and like put tape over like the little like the knockout so i could record over them like i would do right. anything to be able to record stuff but i don't have much of that stuff anymore because it all got taped over or lost or whatever is this at a point when you started playing guitar when you were doing this? Cause you were like writing your own songs. Yeah. We're, we're, we're bouncing around a bit here. Uh, but yeah, at this point, like when I'm plugging a guitar into the, into the stereo, I'm probably like 15 or something. Okay. And I was, you know, just starting to play guitar. I had like a few friends who also played, maybe like one of them was like a good guitar player and the rest of us were just sort of discovering it. You know, I remember going, um, my Rob, that kid, Rob and I, um, Rob that I mentioned earlier, he and I would go over our friend Alan's house and he had a guitar amp. So like Rob had a bass, I had a guitar, Alan had a guitar and a guitar amp. And we'd all like take turns, plug it into his amp and, you know, seeing what that sounded like and stuff, but we weren't yet like playing music together. Okay. We'll put a pin in this. Cause I know we're going to probably circle yeah. back to it. Uh, okay. I'll hit you with the, with the next, uh, question in my, in my list here, which is, uh, do you remember the first album you remember buying with your own money? Like if you had an allowance or something like that. Uh, definitely would have been like Columbia House or like BMG, you know, like the, the tape club oh, yeah. thing, like the pennies. And then like, um, you know, you get like 10 records for a penny or whatever. 10 and CDs then like, for a penny or whatever. Yeah. But then, and then they start sending you other stuff and billing you for it. If you don't send something in that tells Says them not don't. to. So I'm, I'm going to guess that the first thing I spent my own money on other than that penny for the, for the initial 10 was probably like a thing I didn't want um, <laughs> that I just like waited too long to send back. Cause I wasn't, I didn't like scam them too, too hard the way that most people did. Like, yeah. I think eventually my relationship with that company ended with like <laughs> a threat of like a collections agency, like everybody. But, um, uh yeah i didn't like scam them that hard but you know i got a lot i got a lot of stuff that way like i remember 
my initial batch of stuff was like, you know, based purely on the cover, like the, the cover artwork and on like reputation and on the text in their catalog description. You know, like I, I think in the first batch, I remember getting, like I thought I maybe had an interest in, in like heavy metal. Uh-huh. And I remember being like, oh, what's this thing? It's got a skull on the cover. It looks sick. Grateful Dead's greatest hits. Yeah. Uh, it's like, <laughs> this is like a, yeah, they're dead. Like, this yeah, is it sounds awesome. hard. Right? Yeah. It sounds hard. Um, so I got, like, yeah, I got Grateful Dead's greatest hits. But, you know, like, you know, at, at that point in time where, like, you didn't have access to, like, the same discovery tools we do now, like, you, you know, and everything was a financial decision. So, like. Right you know, you, you like, listen, I still listen to the hell out of that greatest hits record. And, you know, I, I, I didn't end up getting a lot out of that, but there, you know, there were other ones that I did eventually get, get something out of. Like I, you know, I spent a lot of time with Steppenwolf and like other things <laughs> back, back then, you know? Um, but you know, the other thing that I think is interesting about like music discovery being a financial decision back then is that like, you know, for me, I was always like a little more interested in, um, investing in my own music than other people's. So like I, I missed out on buying a lot of records, a lot of t-shirts going to a lot of shows and stuff. Cause I was like saving money to buy flangers and, and things like that. And also even when I did get into a band, like I would buy like their cheapest record. And if I liked it, then I would buy another band's cheapest record. I wouldn't be like, Oh, this band's great. I'm going to get all their records. It was like, Oh, this band's great. But then I've heard about this other band. Let me try like getting one of theirs. So like, my point of entry, like my favorite Judas Priest record is Ram It Down because it's the only one that I had when I was a kid. It's it's the one where they're covering Johnny B. Good. You know what I mean? It's not known as right. one of their like yeah, marquee yeah, yeah. releases, but that's the one that I got because it was like on a discount at, at, you know, not even like, I don't even think I was going to Newberry Comics yet. It might've been like Strawberries Records and Tapes or something, something right. like that. There were some other like local stores we used to go to. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was all, it was all like that. You know, it paid off for me with, um, you know, you know, you know, like in the mid nineties when like the, the record labels were just trying to figure out who the next Nirvana was and they were signing everybody yeah. and there was all these like really great bands that got major label deals. Like, you know, you know, Jawbreaker and Jawbox and, uh, the Melvins and all that kind of stuff. And, and then all that stuff or the vast majority of it ended up in the bargain bin. Totally. So, but yeah. also a lot of times, like I hate to say, but a lot of those records are those, some of those bands' best records. Absolutely. And, um, so like Drive Like Jehu, for example, like yeah. Yank Crime, I think pretty indisputably their best record. Yeah. That was, uh, that was six ninety nine at Newberry Comics. Whereas like the previous album was like seventeen ninety nine Cause I, I forget the, Maybe the first album was on Merge or something like that, but it was, you know, it was oh, Touch Merge, and Go. Yeah, or Touch and um, Go, one of those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, Interscope was just like blowing them out. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I did hear a lot of stuff, discover a lot of stuff for because it was cheap, but, you know, it just so happened that when I was doing that and when I was at my poorest, um, oh, there was just a lot of good shit coming out. What was the, uh, what was the first concert you went to? Like concert or show? Uh, we could split the day. What's, uh, you know, give me one of each, I guess. <sighs> Concerts would, would be like, um, would, would just be like, you know, like 
Beatles cover band comes through or like the thing my parents want to go to or something okay, like yeah. that, like go, going to like, you know, Disney on ice or, you know, that kind of stuff. I didn't, I, I started getting an interest in rock concerts and like, I, I tried to go to Jane's addiction when I was like probably 15, 16. And my mother was like, well, Kurt, can I see one of their tapes? Uh. And I was like, Oh God. All right, here we go. So I bring yep. her, um, I bring her nothing shocking and I you know, show her the tape and obviously it has, you know, famously has the Perry Farrell, like, you know, sculpture of the two naked women with their hair on yeah. fire on the cover. And, and then this is also at a time, like, like, do you remember when like lyric sheets printed all of the lyrics, like the right, woes yeah. and the haze and like the, you know, Hanneman solo, like King solo, like stuff like yeah. that it was all in there. And so she's like reading the lyrics and she gets to the song. Ted just admit it. And like, they print every single thing that he, that he says. And she, my mother, who's like just the sweetest, kindest lady, um, yeah, is just reading like sex is violent. Sex is violent. Sex is violent. Sex is violent. Just over and over <laughs> again. Cause it's printed like 20 times in the lyric sheet. Yeah. And, uh, she's like, you're not going to this concert. So, you know, I kind of didn't really have an opportunity to go to a lot of that stuff. Cause like, you know, at the time, my parents are very supportive of my music now, but at the time they, they looked at it as a, like a distraction from school and something, there was a correlation between my grades slipping and me getting involved mm. in music. Sure. Um, and so they were really concerned about that. So the, they weren't super supportive of it at that time. So it really wasn't until I was driving that I started to do stuff. And by then I was like interested in going to punk shows. So like my first punk show was, um, uh, an area band called Sam Black Church. Mm, and it was at, right. uh, at like in the, in the basement of a, ch of a, of an actual church in Reading, Massachusetts. That would have been in like 1991. Um, and it went with some buds that I had, had played music with and, and no, you know, it was immediately hooked, you know, it was probably a hundred people there. And it was like the, it was like a mosh pit. At one point the PA died. I think it was just a vocal PA, but it died. And then Jet, the singer was just like cupping his hands together and singing like, like this. And the whole crowd was like singing along with him. And, and I was like, what the fuck? is this like i had never seen anything like this before and um i was completely floored and, th and that's a band that like was never their live energy was never fully captured and i think every kind of scene has a band like this where like it's they were like the no you had to be their band because like right, if i course. try to get somebody like if i try to get you into sand black church right now even you know you know even though we're not like that different in age like you're not going to have the perspective to understand it or appreciate it. Like they were totally. basically like, if you could throw like early Swedish death metal and like bad brains at the peak of their power in a blender, that's what that band was, especially live. It just never, it just never really got captured on tape until like later in their history, they sort of went what we, what at the time we called groove core, but you might say more like sort of, proto new metal now yeah. um and like those later recordings like when tim o'hare started recording them like that stuff that stuff sounds a lot better but it just wasn't the wasn't the the thing that initially attracted me to that band totally but yeah then just started going to shows and i was hooked that's awesome what led you to going to that show you know how like when people are in their like teens i think they need like you know, I'm, I'm, I'm turning 50 in two weeks. So I, I can, at this age, like I can enjoy a lot of different things all at the same time. And they, the things can coexist in my brain. Like I can, I can like all kinds of different music, but like back at, in that era, like 
at that age, uh, you really, people kind of felt like they needed like to subscribe to one camp and one camp only. And in order to enter a new chapter in their life, they had to exit the previous chapter. Totally. And for like my friend group, there was this thing between like metal and hardcore where like metal was a thing that you had to like, you had to end that phase in your life to fully transition to hardcore. And like, so I was in this band and we had a couple different names. So at the end we were called, um, divine misery. Um, we never, we never played a show. We were just like, you know, classic, like thrash stuff. All like the Bay area thrash stuff was, was our influences. And we were writing originals, but we, you know, we had a lot of songs we wrote together, but I was like, I was the second tiered guitar player in the band. I was not as good as the other guitar player. Um, but the thing that I really brought to the table in that band was that I knew a bass player and I had a car so I could bring the bass player to practice. And then when, um, when that bass player decided not to be in the band anymore, I knew another bass player and I brought that guy to practice. Um, (laughs) that first guy was, was Rob, who I talked about earlier. The second guy was Eric, Eric Ralston, who later was in Converge for a little while. And, um, and then, uh, so, but then once, once we got to the point where like everybody had cars, <laughs> then I wasn't so needed anymore, but also like they were kind of transitioning away from metal into hardcore and the band like broke up and quote unquote broke up and then reformed like a month later as a four piece without me with a new name and now wow. a hardcore sound. And they were, they were called stand against, um, they were, they were a cool band and I, you know, I stayed friends with them and I filled in for them here and there and I, and I helped help them record some early demos and stuff when I was just kind of borrowing four tracks from friends. Um, but yeah, so I, I went with those, with those people. Um, Kevin, the singer was later in this band called days gone that mm. maybe got, got out a little bit more than stand against did. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we went to that show together and those are the people that I started going to the shows with, um, originally before I met the people in converge. Got it. Which, got it. Which was called blindsided at the time. Okay. I read that you're, that early on you played saxophone. Was that yeah. your first instrument? Yeah. It was just like a school band kind of thing. Yeah. If you, have you played saxophone in the last 25 years? You know, here and there, I mean, this, there's saxophone on Converge records. Um, That's what I was I thinking say, of. If that was, I'd you. say at least 50% of Converge records have some sax buried on them somewhere. You know, really? I, I pull it out here and there, but you know, I don't really have the chops or the embouchure anymore to to do it well i was you know i was i was good for high school but i didn't really progress beyond that because uh, I, I stopped having people to play with you know shortly after high school and got got more interested in playing guitar you know literally just two days ago someone was trying to get me to play sax on their record and we kind of ran out of time it stresses me out having to play saxophone because like you know with like i feel like i'm like a pretty decent guitar player and i'm a pretty decent recording engineer and like so i get used to being good at something and then when i'm asked to do something i'm not good at <laughs> it's like it's like not as fun <laughs> i feel bad i feel bad being bad at it <laughs> and i'm going to be I, bad i don't want to be bad on another band's record i'm going to be bad i, I mean the, you know you're to be transparent like your wikipedia is the one that that mentions the saxophone thing and it also mentions like bass clarinet so were you were you switching between a couple different instruments just because you were asked to in the school band sort of a situation what, what yeah was i mean i would just i would that? just like pick up i mean i just liked different musical experiences i've always believed that like the more diverse your musical experience is the better uh of, the more well-rounded musician you are and like the better 
of a communicator you are with whatever, whoever your collaborators are. Like if you can play a little bit of drums, you can explain a drum part to a totally. drummer better, or you can understand yeah. what, it, what is, what is possible. And, you know, same, same is true for any instrument, but yeah, with bass clarinet, it was just sort of like a boredom thing. My school had some kind of like requirements that if you wanted to be in jazz band, which is the fun band, you had to be in concert band and marching band. Oh, And so then you end up, and then if you wanted to be in jazz combo, you had to do some other requirement or I don't know. I don't remember all the deal, but I, I kind of got bored just playing the same instrument in every band. I was in like five or six different school bands and I ended up doing like bass clarinet in one of them and doing tenor sax in one. Most of the stuff was baritone sax in, in the town orchestra. I, we didn't have a bassoonist, so I would play baritone bassoon parts on my baritone sax. Um, and, uh, which is interesting because, you know, bassoon's a B-flat bass clef instrument and, and um, baritone sax is an E-flat treble clef instrument. But like the mid, like the middle line on bass clef is an F, right? And it's a B on treble clef. But at concert pitch, the middle line is the same concert pitch for a B-flat bass clef instrument as it is for an E-flat treble clef instrument. So to transpose the bassoon music to baritone sax, all I had to do was pretend it was treble clef and add three sharps. So initially I would just like retranscribe it all and add the sharps, but like later on I got good at just kind of transposing it. But then you want to get even nerdier. Do you want to get even nerdier about this? Let's go. Okay. So on a bass clarinet, you know, a bass clarinet and a, and a saxophone are, you know, very similar instruments when it comes to how you finger them. You know, they're con- yeah. contextually different, but um, the way that you do the fingerings are, there's keys in all the same places, but they have different names. So they're off, they're off by a fifth. And, but a bass clarinet is a B flat treble clef instrument. You know, again, a baritone sax is an E flat treble clef instrument that are so they're a fifth off but also the names of the notes are off by a fifth so if you just pretend a bass clarinet is a baritone sax then you can play all the same music on it interesting if you if you if you pretend the fingering names are saxophone fingering names and not clarinet fingering names huh it's it's weird is this something that you discovered on your own or was this like explained to you mm, no i think i discovered it on my own like i just sort of noticed well, like just from, from doing it. Yeah. Well, I, I remember like when I first started taking music lessons in like fourth grade, I remember noticing that like my neighbor's trombone sheet music was the same as mine, but bass clef. Right. And I kind of figured out why. Huh. But yeah, I don't know. Music's weird. Hey there. Do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Were you into jazz and are you still into jazz? Yeah. I'm the record that I'm into the most right now is like, I don't know if you'd call it jazz, but, um, 
it's it's sort of like like latin influenced jazz like and there's some like afrobeat stuff but th- this this guy um actually not 100 sure how to pronounce his name um munir hosen i think yeah it's yeah. Uh, uh you know you know who that is yeah um his album uh made in nordest is absolutely incredible and very jazz influenced i, I love like i love music i love music that is like that i don't analyze so music like from outside of my genre music that i don't like i i don't think i'm a super competitive person by nature but like if i listen to some like metallic hardcore band i'm going to be thinking about it in terms of like you know the choices that the band made the choices that the engineer made like I wonder what mic they used on the bass drum or, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Like, right, yeah, yeah. But when I listen to music that's well outside of my, my genre and outside of my musical understanding, I can kind of listen to it just for enjoyment and more at face value. Totally. And um, his music is like that. I know very little about him as a person. I know very little about like the recordings or any of that stuff, but I love how free it is. And that's something that I'm just sort of, trying to encourage my clients to do more now is to just be more free about the way they make music. Like, you know, now everybody comes in, everybody wants a click track. Everybody wants like drum samples and everybody, you know, and I'm, I don't try to like push that too much. Um, I mean, sometimes it, sometimes it makes sense, but, um, you know, it, yeah, I would just wish, I wish like, I wish I was involved in like music that was a little, that embrace the humanity a little bit more. And I feel like his music really embraces the humanity and it's, it's coming from a jazz, a jazz perspective in some ways. So I, and I do understand that from like the time I spent playing music as a kid. Yeah. I was like thinking, I, you about... know, I actually almost went to music school for jazz, jazz saxophone. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah I was, actually, I was there's actually a good at... story for this. Um, yeah, please, please. Like, go. um, I, uh, one of the schools that I, that I tried to get into was, uh, the university of Hartford, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and they have the Hart school of music there. And they also have an acoustics program. So you, that seemed really like a great program for me because you'd get accepted to the music school. You also had to get accepted into the engineering school. And then you did stuff that, like, you know, I thought maybe I'd work for like Bose or something like that someday. And, um, so I got into the engineering school, um, my audition for the music school, I went to a show the night before and took an elbow to the face and had a fat lip. Um, so like my embouchure was all fucked up. So like I walk into the audition and the guy auditioning me is Jackie McLean, who's like this famous tenor player. He was like kind of yeah. like an understudy of Charlie Parker in a way. Total and, blue note um, records, everything. Yeah. yeah, totally. So he was awesome. He was like, um, you know, it was probably like kind of towards the end of his career where he was just like wanted a job with benefits or something. <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, you know, I went in, went into the audition, you know, I think he like noticed my fat lip and, was, and I thought he was like a little intrigued by that. And then, so I was like playing my horn out like the side of my mouth and like, I played whatever piece I had prepared and he, you know, he just had me like play some, some whole tones and to, like get an idea of like what sort of sound I was making. But then he was just like, Oh, can you play giant steps? And I was like, Okay. Yeah. So like open up my real book to the giant steps page and start, you know, like dun, 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 dun. he's like, no, can you play giant steps? <laughs> you know, I really had no idea what he meant. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, it was funny. I, you know, I ended up getting into school there, but it, it just didn't make sense for me to, to move to Connecticut at that time. Totally. God, that, that sounds like a very whiplash situation where it's like, I'm not asking you to just read the music. I'm asking you to feel the music kind of a situation. 
which is a tall ask for like a 17 year old. Oh, to- coming from someone who is a legendary blue note musician. That is, uh, yeah. I mean, a a, you know, like a suburban white kid who didn't grow up in a musical family. Yeah. It's a tall ask. Um, yeah, I was curious when I was looking at the instruments that you played, if you were a fan of like Eric Dolphy, cause I know that he played both sax and, uh, and the, uh, the bass clarinet and i was because i was like who who's like a famous jazz bass clarinetist and i was like okay eric dolphy's the only name that i know, I don't on know here. him oh he was uh, a blue note the, guy as well okay the only one i can think of off the top of my head that like i recognized when i was younger was um jerry mulligan okay he was in he played he played with miles davis um yeah and he, he apparently he like claims to have written most of the hooks on like kind of blue i think Oh, no way. Um, but yeah, I'm not like a huge jazz head. Um, sure. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I identified him just like, you know, cause he was like the preeminent baritone jazz player. Fair enough. Yeah. I, my jazz discovery only started like kind of maybe a little pre pandemic. And it was just something that I immersed myself in because I think it appealed to the, collector brain that i have where it's like once you discover how all these people play on each other's records you start just kind of going down wormholes where you're like oh my god now i gotta hear that one oh my god all these guys are all on this record together so i think that's what started it so uh you know what's so interesting to me about jazz is the way that um i mean you know about the real book right no what's that the real book is like um it's something that everybody had these like i think it was like some people from Berkeley, like Berkeley college of music that they created because they needed a way in order to take requests to have like a shorthand of like, you know, if they're at a wedding and they're playing whatever they had prepared and then somebody's like, Oh, can you play all of me or something like they can just say, yeah, like open the real book. Here's like a shorthand changes melody. We can play it. But the thing that's so interesting about, and it was totally illegal. It it just, it bypassed um, like music. It's now it's, I think Hal Leonard owns it now, but like it bypassed music publishers. It was totally like, um, it was totally like a bootleg thing. Like they, nobody got paid royalties for any of their compositions off the real book or anything like that, but it gave musicians a shorthand to be able to play the songs. However, the really interesting thing is that like, you know, jazz musicians never play the same thing twice. Right. right. They're not always playing the same keys, the same tempos. Like the, the solos are certainly wild, wildly different, but like, yeah. you know, the head might be the same, like with the same hook, but these, the real book, all those transcriptions were from specific recordings. So, and that's just not how jazz works. Like jazz gets documented, you know, in a recording, but that's just how that song went that day. That day. Yeah. Um, you know, but a, a week later or a week earlier, the song went differently and all of that knowledge is lost. So people who grew up learning how to play jazz based on the real book transcriptions were getting a very like sort of narrow view of what the song was and not necessarily oh. like absorbing the spirit of the song. They're just sort right. of absorbing a and mimicking like a particular recording of a song. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that is super interesting. Um, so once you started to learn how to play guitar, do you remember the first song you learned how to play? Yeah, I do. Actually, it was Go Fight Win because I was in marching band and we played like, so we would, uh, we would begrudgingly do like football games 
So there was like that dun 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 go fight win. Um so yeah, football. I'm so not a jock, but um like I had I had like taken I thought that I wanted to play bass because I thought like oh yeah, four strings is gonna be easier. Um so I had taken my dad's acoustic guitar. I used to do all kinds of shit without asking for permission, like taking things apart and putting them back together. And you know, I took my dad's guitar and I like stripped half the strings on it, I restrung it with like four strings but not four in a row it was like like e string every gap. other or yeah like i moved like i moved the a to where the d would be and i moved the d to where the g would be and then like, right i think i put the the g where the high e would be you know so it was like they had gaps like a bass and i started trying to like learn how to play bass and like so yeah go fight win was like the first thing that i that i like uh yeah like learn on guitar after that like I think I started trying to like learn like, you know, classic rock stuff like Casey DC. I remember mm-hmm. tr- like trying to learn back in black and trying to learn like Van Halen's Panama, that kind of stuff. Um, totally. I do remember the first song I played in, in, in public on guitar. What was that? That was, um, the acoustic version of Neil Young's rocket in the free world. Okay. What brought yeah. you to that situation? Were, were you doing like a I solo show? No, it was a, it was a high school talent show. And oh, I played okay. it. I played it on, I actually figured that out by ear, which is something I've kind of always done. Like I never I didn't have money. Like again, like money decisions, there was no internet to look up tab. Totally. And you could go to like a music store and buy a song book, but um, that cost money too. So like learning by ear was just the cheapest way to learn a song. So like I figured that out by ear and um i think i because that was a the that that album was a cd the one of the first cds that my father bought and that was something that like had some crossover with with what i was interested in so i would listen to that but you know my friend matt haskell and i played that at a in-school talent show and in front of our whole school just just him and me he sang it and I sang back up, but I didn't know how microphones worked. So I was probably like eight feet away from my microphone. And so people couldn't hear me at all. And so I, they just thought I was like, I was like, like gum chewing, like <laughs> fake, fake singing along or something. But I was singing like what I thought was harmony. Um, <laughs> but yeah, did that. Did you win? It wasn't a competition. Okay. Okay. I, we, we even had like, we had like a few different things where like, bands could play at my high school there was like there was like an in-school talent show there was like an after-school talent show there was the battle of the bands and then there was the barbecue and all of them were things that like school people and bands at school could play in but none of them were competitions okay so you mentioned the band that was like a metal band that was early on for you were they your first band no, I had some bands that like never did anything. Then there was uh, around the same. The first band I ever played a show with, aside yeah. from like a talent show situation, was uh, White Boy Rap Attack. Yeah. What was it called? White Boy Rap Attack. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so what does this band sound like? Let me tell you the origin story of White Boy Please. Rap Attack. Um, well, fun fact, White Boy Rap Attack had a, um, <laughs> had a Japanese-American MC and an African-American drummer too. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> it started out as like, uh, we just loved like our run DMC and beastie boys and like, you know, like first wave, like boom bap kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. pop. And like, I was like an okay beatboxer and, and, you know, we were all in like marching band and we would just like 
do rap songs on the back of the bus on the way like to and from marching band competitions. And then eventually that sort of turned into us playing instruments and playing a few shows. I remember, I remember like one of the, <laughs> one of the shows that we played was like, we were playing outdoor at, at the quad at Phillips Academy, which is just like probably the most prestigious prep school in the country. And, um, we're playing and, but, but nobody was watching us because we were playing against jello wrestling. And <laughs> like on the other side of the quad was like a jello wrestling thing happening. And so everybody, and the people who go to the school, like, yeah, honestly, like it could have been like, it could have been like some like nephew of George Bush's versus like a, like a cousin of Saddam Hussein, like, jello wrestling at the time like it was like <laughs> this school was all like all like politicians kids from all over the world right and like you know ultra wealthy power broker type people and you know and then yeah we're playing our weird like like i guess what would you call rap rock music i was playing like distorted banjo like this is way before show me the body i'm playing distorted <laughs> i'm playing distorted i'm not saying they got it for me uh, um <laughs> But I um, yeah, I'm playing distort. I mean, this is it was t- terrible high school music, like the worst yeah. of the worst. Um, and it was, the, but Did you know, our only like record? Really, no, we never even oh. really track recorded. I wish. Um, yeah. There's like I have like one photo. Oh, and the one photo is great because I'm wearing a flannel, but it's like it's unbuttoned, so you can just see kind of like a V of the T-shirt I'm wearing. And I had like a WBRA a White Boy Rap Attack, um, iron on letters on the T-shirt under my flannel, but in this photo the W is obstructed by the flannel. So it just says bra. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it was, it was pretty wild, but, um, but yeah, you know, like we loved like the, I guess we love like just sort of like the sort of Rick Rubin rock influence. I actually don't, totally. I did love Aerosmith, but I don't remember loving the walk this way, like collab, but I, I loved like, you know, like rock box and raising hell and yeah. Um, you know, no sleep till Brooklyn and that, you know, we did like those kind of songs and then we wrote some originals. Um, this is, this is like before Rage Against the Machine and, you know, the other early rap rock stuff that like became more notable. Yeah. Like was, was Epic from Faith No More a thing yet? Ooh, I, you know, I hated that song. Did you? Yeah. That was the one, like I didn't, I, I actually loved that album. Woodpeckers yeah. from Mars was my shit. Um, and uh, what was it? Oh, there's another song on that record that I really love. Um, I loved that record, but that particular song, I I thought it was like, I thought it was pandering hmm. or something. Like I, it yeah. seemed like too like lowest common denominator. And then when they would perform that stuff live, like Mike Patton, who's it's it it almost seemed like he would like intentionally tank the performances, <laughs> which I didn't understand at the time. I kind of get it now. Yeah, more, it's in line with but his vibe. I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't understand it at the time, but yeah, there were some times where he would, he would be singing and he'd just be like, it's it. What is it? Like doing some kind of like affectation to his voice that was out of line with the song. But I also, th- at that point in time, like I didn't understand why live versions of songs were different than recorded versions. Uh-huh. Like if somebody played something faster or like ad libs some vocals or like the backing vocals weren't there, you know, so any kind of thing that like deviated, like, I didn't get that yet. Like I, at that point in time, like I wanted to like go to a show and, or go to a concert and 
see the artist, but hear the record. And I think that's still very true in, in pop music now. Like, I don't think it's a lot of pop music. I don't think people really want to hear it. I think they just want to see it. Um, and now, you know, I'm the, I'm the polar opposite now. Like now I love the differences live versus recordings. Yeah, absolutely. What about the first time you record? Like, I know you were talking about, you had a, you know, you did the four track thing and you were recording a lot of stuff on your own, but what was the first band that you had that you guys went to a recording studio that you weren't recording? Like, like the first time, oh, like blindsided, like sort of the Converge predecessor. We, we went to a studio called West Sound, not West, okay. West Side, but called West Sound. It was, I later, later learned it was like a Christian studio. Interesting. Um, that didn't come up while we were doing it. But yeah, we did, we did our first few recordings there, um, like up through the Halo and the Haystack LP um, was recorded there. And all that stuff was like just done in a day. Like there's a, there's a song on Halo and Haystack where like the bass cuts out for like half a riff and it's cause he like dropped his pick or something and then like <laughs> or whatever something like that happened and it's like yeah. we kept it because we were doing the record in a day in a day yeah 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 uh what was that like for you like going into that like at that point were you already pretty familiar with the idea of recording like were you doing yeah. stuff on your own and then you went there and was there anything that you took from that experience that you maybe just like learned for yourself for that in that day i think i learned that the thing, the things that I learned from that were not any specific real techniques because it, it was done so quickly. Um, and it was like, you know, the engineer there was like, he was a nice guy, but he was just, you know, doing his job. Doing his job, um, totally. And so there wasn't like a lot of discussion or mentoring that happened. Um, but I think what I learned was that I, it was a thing that I didn't really understand that well and that I wanted to get to understand better so that I could better communicate my ideas and that's why i started recording uh, okay. for real like the four track stuff was just kind of like i'd borrow from a friend and then kind of button mash until sound happened and then we get the idea out but then when i when i think of like when i really first started recording it would be around 1995 when i got um a half inch eight track recorder and a little mixing console and some microphones and then like started to like really learn how recordings were made and, and you know what could be done in them and, and to educate myself to be a better musician when i was in a studio situation got it yeah before we get into sort of like the initial god city sort of stuff i was curious what was the first release that you had that was maybe on vinyl like which band was that was it converge or before that yeah it was converge so the the first converge seven inch which has like um uh, some like bridge like the, some jaws on the cover it's like a, it says converge um in red and then in there's red, this yeah. like like rusty jaws that are that it's like a photo looking down on a like the expansion joint on a bridge um that's that's the first that's the first final release and that kind that came from two different recording sessions at west sound yeah a lot of those early converge releases um are weird mixes of of recording sessions where like few songs were on one record a few songs were on the other record sometimes a, cu a couple of the songs were on both records so it's hard totally, to really say yeah, like yeah, what yeah. the first like lp is even um for example but um but yeah that it was that and then like we didn't have a record label to put that out so but we we knew that like records had record label names on them right and but we had our friend george um who's who's no longer with us he um he was like a typesetter who was going to be doing like the typesetting on the record. And he was talking about how, um, how he was like thinking about starting a record label. 
and we were like, all right, we'll just, you know, just put your record label's name on it. And like, you know, so he like had, I don't even know. I mean, we might've given him some copies, but I don't think he did anything with it. Like, I don't think he distributed it or anything. Yeah. I think he just like, it's called foundation America records, which I think he misspelled too. Um, I think he misspelled America. Um, <laughs> like on the spelled, record. Yeah. It's either. So he did two records. He did that. And he did this band bricklayer local Six Thirty, who are like our like show buds early on. And it was either our record or his record. He like misspelled the name of his record label. Okay. But it was kind of cool. Cause I, I have that seven. I have the okay. seven inch. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Go get it. I'm going to look one second. This will be fun for everybody. Okay. This is taken and this is taken at the, the, the one like abandoned train station in Andover, Massachusetts, where we're yeah. from. Um, and we're like, Oh, it's going to look hard. I'm going to be down at the tracks. <laughs> um, so on the back and, here, it is correct, but maybe there's something is. on the inside that, is there even an inside cover? Oh, yeah, there is. Um, oh, I think those photos from the inside are like photos of us, of not of us. I want to say that might be only the witness playing, for like a photo I took at the Middle East upstairs. The the photo on the right is only of a witness. Okay. Oh, that's oh, so like funny. Graphic design is my passion. So you designed um, this? Not even. No, Jake? I think I think it was like a little bit of Jake, a little bit of Jake's dad, maybe. Okay. And um. And then I think George did the Andy McLeod, Andy McLeod. Okay. And, um, he's, yeah, he was like a early friend of ours. He was like, yeah, he was like real into like, like the music that would later be called grunge. Okay. It doesn't even say the, it doesn't say the, the label name. It just has an address. It says the song titles and it has an address. Okay. 11 Sutherland street Andover. Oh yeah. That's where Jake grew up. I'm I'm open to the idea that well I mean I know like memory is not super reliable, but like every once in a while, like it's really nice to know that my memory is correct about totally. something. Like yeah. okay, I had this kind of just side note Please. story about that. Um, so one of the first shows that Jake and I went to together in Boston was, uh, and this actually my memory of this show came up the other day because somebody posted about it. Um, was uh was Chromax at the Paradise Rock Club in Boston. And um it was like kind of a weird show because like Leeway was supposed to play, but they bailed for some reason and 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 Chromax were gonna like this was like later era Chromax with or like like early nineties Chromax where like yeah. Harley's singing. Um I'm not even sure who the the rest of the band was at the time. Um but yeah they were supposed to borrow Leeway's gear. Um Leeway didn't show up. Um I think I want to say Sam Black Church played. I forget who the other band was. Um, but then the opener was Overcast. So Chromax ended up borrowing Overcast gear, which at the time was like crate combos and like, like you know, like basically like high school gear. So they like played the show in high school gear. But then after the show, like Jake managed to like interview Harley for a zine. And I remember him asking him about like, um, about like Krishna consciousness and stuff. And, um, as like Harley was like smoking weed out of this like orange bong that he had got in um, <laughs> this like an orange fiberglass bong that he told us he got in Amsterdam. And like, you know, we know about like Krishna consciousness through the shelter lens. Yeah. And so like, he was asking him about that. And like Harley said, like, like I've been smoking dope and drinking beer since before I had hair in my balls. And then like pulled, reached into the cooler, like lifted out two rolling rocks and like opened them both with his eye sockets. <laughs> Um, and then like, you know, I remember being like, what the fuck to him? And he like showed me, like pulled back his like 
his like lip and showed me that he had no teeth left. Um, he's just like, yeah, I got no teeth left from Michael, put them in my mouth. And then, but then like, he like posted a video like in the past year on his Instagram where he like opens a beer with his eye socket. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Like I remembered that right. That wasn't like, you know, I've been, I've told that story probably, you know, a yeah. hundred times in the past 30 years. And like, you know, I, after a certain little while, I start to accept the idea that like, maybe that didn't happen. Totally. <laughs> and I'm just yeah, remembering yeah, yeah. it a certain way. But like, you know, when he did that, I was like, oh fuck, it did happen. Awesome. That's incredible. That's so yeah. funny. Um, I don't know if I actually know when, where did you actually meet Jake originally? I forget in, if I asked him that when he was on the show. Yeah, we went, we went to high school together. Oh, okay, cool. He's a couple years younger than me. Um, yeah. but like, uh, Jeff, the original, like other guitar player, he, he, and I knew each other a little bit through some mutual friends and they were their band, which was called blindsided at the time, um, was going to do this like suicidal tendencies cover uh at the high school barbecue and uh they needed somebody to play the guitar solo nice and while i'm no rocky george like jeff wasn't really like a guitar soloist so he asked me to like come and play that song with them and they like they like didn't learn that i went to their practice and like it was the song can't bring me down which starts with this like long guitar solo and then the song kicks in after the guitar solo and i like learn the solo i like play the solo and then like nobody starts playing when none of the solo and then like i'm like okay yeah so that's the part where everybody kicks in to the song right there they're like okay i mean they're like 14 at the time and i'm like 16 or 17 or something um so uh i do it again i do the whole intro solo and then like songs about to, to bust in like you know i give them that kind of a visual cue of like here's where it comes in guys like and then nobody comes in and then i ask them like did y'all learn the song they're like no well, here's how to play step and stone. <laughs> and like, so like, I just started, like, I was already there at their practice. So I just started jamming with them. And I guess like the way that Jake remembers it is I just sort of kind of invited myself into the band. Um, I, so I guess, I guess that's what I did. I don't know. I guess I kept showing up. Um, You're still actually went, not a permanent or maybe member. I, <laughs> maybe I went to the next practice, like thinking that they were going to, would have had learned the suicidal song by then. Uh-huh. But anyway, I ended up just playing with them and, and then like we started writing originals and, you know, figured out that we had to change our name to not blindsided. Cause there was a bunch of other bands with similar names, like blindside and blindsided and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So we changed it to undertow. Um, oh, wow. Which, <laughs> yeah. Fun fact about that. Like, uh, we changed it, you know, cause you can't, there's no way to like Google it yet. Um, of course. So we changed it to undertow in like 91 we record our demo as undertow we like print print all these demo covers that say undertow on them and then but haven't yet played a show haven't yet released this demo because we don't have a way to release it other than just sell it at like a merch table totally, locally, at a show yeah. um i think we did actually tapes take some into a store but um anyway uh i used to talk to john Lacroix all the time like you know the guy who would later start um tenured fight and I remember he called me up and was like, Hey, the, there's a band from Seattle. I just saw this zine. There's a band from Seattle called undertow that just started. I was like, ah, fuck. So and we had already like printed up. We hadn't yet printed up our tapes, but we'd already printed up these tape covers and we were like about to print the tapes. So we we're like, fuck, we got to come up with the name fast. And so Jake and I just started like looking through 
just looking through books. I think we like looked through a thesaurus or something to find and found the name Converge. And we're just like, fuck it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, you know, and that's, that's how we became Converge. Yeah. Yeah, But I've, so I've always been in Converge, but I wasn't, I wasn't always in blindsided. I assume at some point, because you ended up obviously touring with, uh, John Pettibone as, uh, as your, as your guy for a really long time of undertow. I'm sure you told him that story pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. We did talk about that. Um, but you know, it wasn't, you know, it's not like a big thing or anything. Um, it's just like, uh, yeah, just a weird, funny thing about how, how it was then. Um, what was the first tour that you ever did? Um, depends on how you define tour. In my mind, the first tour was like three days long and it was just like a weekend like warrior a weekend. Yeah. Cause bands didn't really tour back then. Like when I used to do shows, like bands weren't on tour. If I, if I was doing shows and I wanted to see a band, I would just be like, I would just find like Tim Barry's phone number and call him up and be like, Hey, does a veil want to play like up here? Or like, you know, like I remember to, like calling up the guys and like shot maker be like, Hey, I'm, I do shows in the basement of the supermarket. Do you want to like come down and like play a show? Or like I talked to, um, like I, I know I booked Antioch Arrow that way. It's just cause like I wow. wanted to, oh, no, actually, you know, I think Antioch Arrow was on tour now that I think about it. Uh, I think I maybe already had a little bit of a name of someone who did shows and like they got in touch with me that way. But, um, but yeah, if I wanted to see a band, I would just like ask them to come up and play and then there would be a show and it would be like a matinee at the middle East or it'd be like, you know, a VFW type of show or something like that. And um, so, yeah, so cause there weren't tours, at that point, this is like still early nineties, but the, the first thing that converged it as like a quote unquote tour, I think would have been 95 where we did, I don't know, like maybe like Connecticut, New Jersey and DC or something like that. It was with Daltonic who are our friends bands and they actually were doing a tour and Jake traveled with them for their whole tour. And they, they went around the country and I think they played a bunch of shows with down by law. Um, Scott, the singer of Daltonic had was, had was somehow friends with Dave Smalley at the time. And, um, they got to do a bunch of shows down by lawn and hang out with them. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, that was in my Volvo 240 station wagon. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then, you know, a year we just kept like every year we did a little bit more and, um, yeah. it would be like one tour a year in the summer when people could get time off of work. And, you know, the, like the next year would have, would have been like maybe two, a week or two weeks or something like that down the East coast. And then the year after that was like Eastern U S and then I want to say the first like full U S tour might've been like 97 or 98. Okay. Did you, did you take to touring? Like, this is something that you enjoyed doing? Initially I loved it. Um, it didn't take too long for me to not love it. And now I like it better now, but I had, a, I had like, I've, I've always had the kind of like a love hate relationship with it. Totally. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a recording engineer. I'm always like more interested in the process of, of crafting the song than I am in the process of regurgitating the song. Right. But sometimes, sometimes playing live feels like we're regurgitating old ideas. Other times playing live is super exciting and, and, and really fun. I guess I don't always love the travel aspect of it. Sure. But playing, playing shows is great and meeting yeah. people is great. I am here to update you on the upcoming releases from Persistent Vision Records. You can pre-order 
the incredible split between Massanera and Quiet Fear. It's a collaborative split. Both of these bands are great. If you're a fan of Screamo, sign right up. You can pre-order these through Persistent Vision and through Deathwish Inc. Also available is a self-titled 12-inch from the band Goisha, who are a new DC band featuring members of Genocide Pact and Brain Tourniquet. They're playing death metal with elements of grind, black metal, and punk. And lastly, a record from the band Wreath. The album is called The Land Is Not An Idle God. They are a dark, melodic crust band out of London, featuring members of the iconic bands Fall of Afrafa and Morrow. Hit up Persistent Vision or Deathwish Inc. to order now. Now I have some first questions for you when it comes to strictly recording, which I feel like is a good segue. So what was the first time that you remember listening to a record and like noticing the production? Being like, oh, this sounds like distinctly better or worse. I 100% have an answer for this one. And it's Bruce Springsteen born to, um, sorry, born in the USA. So this, the reverb, it's like a very eighties, like doesn't sound like a real snare drum. Doesn't sound like a real band. It's yeah. a reverb. It's clearly a reverb. So that just like stood out to you where you're like, okay, this is yeah. Different. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I, cause I used to go to sleep, listen to music all the time. Like put on headphones and go to sleep, um, listen to the radio. And that song was like a, was a mega hit at the time when I was first kind of listening to music in that way and um yeah hearing the production of that was like okay this is this is different got it okay so then what was the first band that you recorded that wasn't something that you were creating like a first band that like came to you and was like can you record us i'm not a hundred percent sure i can remember the first like few uh and i'm not a hundred percent sure which order it was but like one of them was this band called um, Esther of Wood Rosin, which later became Kid Kilowatt when, oh, okay. I, when I joined them. Um, so I did the Esther of Wood Rosin demo um, in my parents' garage. Um, I also did uh, Fit for Abuse. You know that band? Yeah. Matt Kelly, Matt Kelly, drummer of Dropkick Murphys, was the band that he sang for. Wow, um, yeah. I did, but I knew him. I th- but then there's this other band. I want to say this other band called The Kabooms was first. But I don't know how they would have. I didn't know them. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> like, I remember they were rad, but I I didn't stay in touch with them. I don't know, wouldn't know how to find them. I but I also don't know how they knew to ask me to record them. I must have done something before that that made them want me to record them, and I don't know what that would have been. Um, when it comes to so like when I was like researching, obviously on like let's just say like <clears throat> like discogs for example um the first thing for god city that comes up as an early recording was 96 which would have been jesuit um obviously Nate yeah Newton's that was in my band yeah there was a so i did like you know probably a couple dozen recordings in my parents garage on that eight track and so like yeah. the first jesuit seven inch um would have been that you know we had the drums and everybody standing in the garage and then i think we put the amps in the in like the furnace room and then I was in like my dad's office with my little mixing console and he kind of like moved out of there for a little while while I got to set up in there. And then when we did vocals, we, my mother had like a, like a cedar closet in the basement for like her winter clothes. Like she would move winter, winter clothes downstairs in the summer and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and we, I remember I'd put a mic in like, in like sort of like right at the, at the 
sort of threshold of where her clothes started. So the people would be like screaming at my mother's winter clothes, um, <laughs> which was like a, like a sound deadening kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Just like screaming at, at her like jacket. Um, oh, that's so funny. And, and they would you'd open up the closet. There'd be a mic there with a bunch of jackets and you'd scream at the jackets. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like Jesuit was there a uh, bunch of like, yeah, weird, like grind bands, this grind band, uh, Guernica was there. Um, close call recorded there fit for abuse. Um, the never, never, I think, um, or no, no, the Huguenots, my, my old band, the Huguenots did a thing there. The, the converge one for overcome comes crashing demos was there. Okay. Um, Esther of wood rosin. Um, there was a couple of other ones. Um, this band called Sarah. Um, but yeah, that was, that's where I, that's where I started recording. I was curious about if you can think of a specific record that you did that set a precedent to where you ended up getting a lot more business. And I, one that when I was looking through your early recordings that stood out to me as like, maybe this was like sort of a beacon was that self-titled drop dead record. Do you, is hmm. that something that you think maybe brought a different type of person to come want to work with you? Yeah, it, I would. Yeah, for sure. Like, cause drop dead were people that I didn't really know super well. They were out of, in, out of town as much as you can consider Providence out of town from Boston. Yeah. But it was definitely like a slightly different scene than my scene. Like my totally. scene, it wasn't necessarily like my musical interest, but my scene was definitely like the more of like the, the straight edge hardcore, like bleach blonde headbands, like um, monogram backpacks kind of people yeah. and drop dead were definitely not that. Right. Um, totally. So that was like a, a thing that started getting me out to a different group of people. And like, you know, like I recorded, I definitely got, got like the pain driver gig as a result of that. Um, but you know, I was doing, I was doing other stuff too that, put me going in a different direction. Like I was living with Piebald at the time of that, like drop dead record. Um, and like, you know, the, there was them, I did some early recordings with them and their, and their friends. There was like, I did some early demo stuff with Frodis. Um, and then I think, I think the big calling card record for me back then was Cavens until your heart stops. Mm. That was the thing that like, that was probably the first album that wasn't converged that I did all of the production on um that might have it might have even predated that drop dead lp got it got it that makes a lot of sense uh i i i made a couple notes of <clears throat> of a few releases that i that if if you'll entertain i'm gonna say it say what they are and then i want you to just give me some sort of like quick response on what what it was like if that's if that's cool with you oh okay hot takes yeah I'll do it hot take yeah um well yeah first off i mean i i actually didn't realize that you worked on uh that frotus record the conglomerate international record oh um i don't know i don't think anything that i recorded was was released at the time it was like demos for that stuff and i think that maybe some of those demos have since come out oh okay got it got it um okay so how about this uh you recorded a lot of the orchid stuff so what was it like working yeah. with orchid Oh, they're great. Super fun people. Um, really like them as people and really love their band. Um, if I have one takeaway of working with Orchid, it's like 
the insanity that was Will's practice rig. Do you know about his, do you know about his guitar practice jig? No. Okay. So he was at, I want to say, I think he was at Hampshire college at the time, like when they founded that band. Yeah. And like, you know, their music is just up and down the neck and he's strumming all the strings at the same time. And he's just like, whoa, like up and down the neck super fast all the time. I was like, how do you like keep your hands from just bleeding all the time? And he told me about this, this like jig that he had built that was like a block of wood that he had like stretched a bunch of strings around and like clamped down somehow. So he had this like block that was covered in strings and he would just carry it around with him everywhere. And he'd be in class just like rubbing his fingers on this like block of strings to like build up his calluses whenever he wasn't playing his guitar because he needed that like physical conditioning to play that music. Oh my God. That's interesting. Uh, Okay. Page 99. I love can I just say I love the freaks, page 99 freaks, but I love, like, I just love all that, those crazy stories about, like, just the weird shit that people in this world get into. Like, totally. <laughs> make yeah. a string jig. Okay. Page 99. Yeah. Also, Total Circus. Um, yeah. Two talk bass players. Taylor. Two like, bass players. Yeah. Two very different bass players. Um, talk to, I talked to Chris. I see Brandon. I haven't seen Corey in a long time. I see Brandon once in a while. I talked to, um, you know, I stayed in touch with the Taylor brothers for sure. Like I, I talked to Chris like last week, my, the next pedal that I'm putting out, uh, or the next version of the bad Larry pedal that I've done before is uh Chris Taylor artwork. So yeah. Oh, we, that's awesome. That's just, when I think about page 99, I just think about friendship. Okay. Uh, Jerome's dream. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a unique and intense band. Um, I remember Jeff being incredibly loud with how he sang. Um, and also that, that's, a. it's interesting when bands are like just really fully formed ideas. And that uh-huh. was a band that was like a fully formed idea. And for me to collaborate with them really was just, um, just, uh, kind of <laughs> doing what I'm told, I guess, you know, like, cause yeah, they yeah, had yeah. some, which is, which is great. Like some people come in and they, and they don't really, they're not really sure what they want and they're looking for a collaboration to kind of form like what, what the sound is. And, and that was a band that like, that wasn't looking for that. They, they had a really um, specific idea about what they wanted to accomplish. Mm, and I'm, okay. I'm so happy to see them reconnecting and playing together again. Yeah. 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 Uh, Limp wrist. I didn't realize you did uh, those. That... Limp wrist. Yeah. Limp wrist. Um, fun fact. Limp wrist is the last band I ever moshed to. Is that true? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've maybe, maybe staged dove for my own band since then. Yeah. Um, which is a totally irresponsible thing for a person my size to do, but sometimes you get caught up in the moment. Um, totally. but no, Limpress is the last band that I moshed for. I actually saw Andrew at a wedding maybe like three months ago and, um, he's doing great. And, um, you know, they still, they still play once in a while, but he's like, yeah, he told me he was like, maybe starting something new, but it was too early to, too early to talk about. So sorry, Andrew, if I'm letting the cat out of the bag, <laughs> but yeah, awesome. Awesome. Incredible. One, one of my favorite bands that I've ever recorded. Um, For, favorite hardcore band anyway. Moving forward. Cause I know this is some years later. Uh, it's a record that I've always been fascinated with the sex positions record. Cause that oh, seemed wow. like it was okay. kind of an amalgamation of a lot of different ideas, right? Yeah. Um, that really was. Yeah, that's a band. Yeah, I mean, that record's cool. That was like a lightning in the bottle kind of moment. 
because there's so many different versions of that band. And we ended up like a touring with them. Like, I want to say only maybe like six months after we did that record. And I want to say that not a single person on the record was on the tour. <laughs> I think I remember hearing that story where like you guys were at the airport and they came up and talked to you and you're like, who was that? And you're like, oh, that's the band we're about to tour with. <laughs> Like that, I just that I whose record I just put out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was some kind of I don't know. There yeah, was... I, th- I think the lore that I once heard was that at one point there was two different versions of that band going at the same time. There may have been like um, a drum machine version and a non drum machine version. I well, I can tell you this that it was not a drum machine. Okay, um, there was never a drum machine, but there was pre recorded drum tracks being played over a PA. Oh, and I know okay. this because, um, because Eric Marcelino, who kind of was the, the point person in that band was, um, my girlfriend at the time's roommate. And I remember him calling me up on Christmas saying, Hey, Kurt, we're going to need drum only mixes tonight because we're leaving on tour tomorrow and our drummer can't do the tour. Oh so, my God. Yeah, and he had figured out some sort of like foot switch, like stop. This is well before Ableton and figured out some sort of foot switch stop start thing to like play audio files from his from his laptop or maybe even from his iPod. And he was like, we need these drum mixes. Like you got to go. It's like it was it was either Christmas or New Year's Eve, but it was like we need these right now. That's incredible. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, the Breather Resist record Charmer. Oh, Wow, you're you're bringing up records that have like drama. <laughs> um, that uh, maybe even so, but the, the the that record was okay. The, that record's got a story. Maybe not drama, but a story. I should I should I should say a story, not drama. Okay, but um, so that record they had planned to record that record in Salem with me at God City, and. You know, we had we had previously toured with them. I knew them. Um, we had we had also toured with um, um, National Acrobat, Acrobat. So like I knew the Patterson brothers. We'd stayed at their house before. Um, they asked me to do that record. They were going to come to Salem to do it. And then like only maybe like a few weeks or something before we were going to do that record. Like Evan was just like, "Hey, you know, I think we're really like a Louisville centric band. We need to record this record in Louisville." And I was like, "What?" which meant that either I was not going to do the record or that I was going to have to come out there to record. Yeah. So, um, I ended up going out there and they got some like really super good deal at what was one of the nicer or seemingly nicer studios in Louisville at the time. I don't remember the name of the place. I want to say it was like downtown recording or something like that, but the deal with like getting the, um, the super cheap rate was that they got to bump us anytime they needed the studio for anything else. Oh, fuck. and I guess Texarkana, not te- no, sorry. Kentuckiana idol was happening at the time, which was like a regional version of American idol. So okay. we'd be like in the middle of doing takes and then someone would come and be like, all right, in 30 minutes, we've got another, uh, Kentuckiana idol contestant coming in to, to cut some vocals. So you're gonna have to split for like four hours. You can come back at like eight. Um, and that would happen like, most days oh my god and they would like zero the console they would like they'd like make recall sheets and then like zero the console 
and then like record a vocal over some like MIDI instruments or something. I didn't witness any of this, but they would do their thing for Kentucky and Idol and then set everything back to the way that we had it. And then we would come back in and resume, but they'd always fuck something up um, in doing that recall. And I wouldn't always catch it. So there's all these like sonic problems with the record because of that. And then like, I tried to mix the record there. The console is malfunctioning, but also like, I don't know, I just wasn't doing a good job. And I remember like taking the mixes every night. We'd go back, we'd go out and listen to them in their van. They just like, weren't great. And then we'd go bring them home and check it out at their house. And, um, funny enough, um, Coliseum was working on a record. I maybe it was God damage. I'm not sure which record it was, but it was like the, the sort of the first version of Coliseum was working on an album with totally. or recording with, with Chris Owens at the time. And they were checking their mixes at the house too. Yeah. And that shit sounded banging. And then the stuff that like I was doing sounded terrible. <laughs> um, so at some point I just kind of had to put my foot down and be like, all right, you're a Louisville centric band and you're tracking in Louisville, but I got to mix it at home. Yeah. Um, so I ended up bringing the tracks back to Salem with me and then, you know, mix, mix the record from there. Was that the first time that you recorded not at it? Like, like where you traveled to record a record? Um, no, no, it wasn't. I, I had done, you know, cause it wasn't until I was in Salem where I am now, which was at 2003 where I had like actually like a good studio and a good listening environment and like mm. a real solid home base. You know, for the, I started recording in 95. So I guess like the eight years prior to that, um, I didn't have a great sounding studio to work in. So when, whenever I got a, a project that had a little bit of budget, um, then I would travel to another studio locally or, um, or, you know, travel out of town sometimes too. So like I had done a bunch of stuff at the outpost, in in massachusetts which, which was a nice nice studio converge recorded our five inch there hmm. um you know uh Kevin did jupiter there with brian mcturnan yeah um and some of the stuff i did there was like like i did um like hope conspiracy cold blue was done okay. there which yeah. i think i think that record desperately needs remix <laughs> but um but i did that record there um I remember the first big trip that I did was um, to the UK to record this band called Eden, Maine. Okay. And we, we recorded that at Southern Studios where like, I think Margin Walker was done there. Like if you guys oh, wow. Margin Walker. Yeah. Like it was, it was John Loder's studio. John, okay. John Loder? Yeah, John Loder um, in um, Wood Green, I think it's called. Um, but yeah, real cool, really interesting, small studio, but cool gear, cool people. And yeah, I made a record with Eden, Maine on tape there. And um, that was my, my first overseas trip to record. Uh, what about Modern Life is War Witness? Oh, cool. Um, yeah, awesome record. Um, okay. Um, yeah, there's always there's a story with every record. It's funny. Like the things that you remember. Um, like the thing I remember the most about that record was just like how deeply Jeff was feeling like the emotional impact of that record and like how much of himself he was putting into that record. I remember him being like really stressed out about his vocal performances and not sleeping and kind of like acting like a maniac a little bit because he wasn't sleeping. I remember him when he was tracking his vocals, I remember him basically running around the live room. Like it was a show. Like I think he used a handheld vocal mic. Yeah. I remember him 
recording the vocals in a denim and leather jacket at the same time, <laughs> uh, running around my live room like a maniac. And also I remember his like, his like vocal, like conditioning thing being eating Rolos and drinking Bombay Sapphire. The weirdest, weirdest. I mean, as a, as a singer, can you imagine that being like, you're like, Oh, time to do vocals. Let me go get some Rolos. Oh my God. <laughs> like, so weird. Like you that can actually, still, I don't even know if you can still buy Rolos, but um, I, the only thing that I could think of that is comparable is uh, when you see, at least for a time there, when I would go see Strife, uh, Rick Rodney had a two liter of Coca-Cola as his onstage drink. Oh, it's funny too. I mean, that's also like Coke and like Mountain Dew is sort of like, yeah, it's sort of like the, the straight edge drink, right? <laughs> I you was know, just, just like, like uppers. Because straight edge, it means uppers. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> God, I, I, have, I have so many great memories of seeing Strife early on. Too. I actually did a sh- I helped do a show that Strife played like one of the, I mean, maybe even their first time in Boston. Oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah. It was um, like it was like strife, mouthpiece, four walls falling, Rorschach, and fuck. nevertheless, and and also maybe, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it was it was def- definitely all those bands. But yeah, I remember I remember mouthpiece going on and thinking that was strife, and then oh, strife wow. came on. I was like, oh fuck, oh no, this is strife. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because they both they both kind of like were definitely like heavily judge influenced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like not having seen either of those bands live, like they were kind of like, you know, pulling from the same influences, but, but like, you know, mouthpiece was rad, but like strife was like, I mean, that's not like my musical genre really, but like they were a fucking awesome band and they brought it every single time I saw them play. Yeah. Um, there was a, how do I phrase this? So there was a point with a lot of the, bands that you were doing that were all very successful at the time but they all had like that hm2 sort of guitar sound you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. yeah. With like black breath trap them nails all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff Who, which was the first band that of that style that you recorded that then became sort of like a thing that people would go to you for like was it black breath trap them trap trap them okay yeah. Like, okay. um, black breath shortly after that, but to trap them for sure. Like, like Brian Izzy was the one that told me that entombed used H and dismember used HM2. Yeah. Cause I didn't know that before that. No, no, people didn't know that. Like there wasn't, it wasn't talked about in that like Swedish death metal book. It wasn't talked about on the internet. Like people yeah. didn't know and he i don't know if he figured it out or if he read it somewhere or whatever but he's he's the one where i was finally like oh that pedal like i've tried that pedal before but i didn't think that that was the thing he's just like no you gotta dime it and then it sounds like that i was like oh crazy okay and then the first you know the first trap them well i think they did like a little ep without me first but then the first yeah. record that i worked with them was like the first time that i had recorded that kind of guitar sound and i was like that was just like opening up because i'm a huge entombed fan yeah and even like i was trying to get that sound on jane doe and i didn't know how to do it i thought like i had seen them play only once before that in like the to ride she'd straight and speak the truth era and i went up on we because i don't know if we played with them or if it was just a place that we had played before, but I remember like kind of like lurking the guitar gear. And I saw that, that Ufa had a, like a DS, not a, 
maybe like a DS one and a wah pedal. And that was it. Like, I don't even think he had an HM two on that tour, huh. but he's also like, he doesn't give a shit. Like he doesn't, he's not like religious about his tone. Um, and so like, I thought that maybe it was like a cocked wah thing or something. And that's how they were getting that sound. Um, like w- when, when I went in to do Jane Doe, I, I actually bought this like MXR equalizer and I, we didn't end up using it, but I was trying to use this like MXR equalizer to kind of recreate what I now know is the HM2 EQ curve in front of my rig for J Doe. And, you know, we didn't end up using it, but that was like, yeah, that's what I was going for. Interesting. But yeah, I think Black, Black Breath would have been shortly after the first Trap Them stuff. They, and they certainly understood how to do it. They were students of that, of that sound and understood how to do it. Um as as well as trap them did um and then this is skipping way ahead because this is a more recent record but something that i'm so fascinated by and i wanted to ask if you get a lot of enjoyment working with bands that um are a different sonic sound than maybe you're used to which is joyce manor oh absolutely they're they were awesome um super cool people fun to hang out with um and you know prior to working with them you know i think i only sort of I, I, I guess I got to know their music the way that a lot of people did when there was that kind of stage diving controversy. Oh yeah. 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 And just seeing and understanding how much more there was there. Um, and, and like Barry's like a true student of power pop throughout the sixties, seventies, eighties and nineties. And yeah. And understanding his like depth of knowledge of that stuff and, and, and the detail that he puts into crafting a song was, was really cool to observe. And I, I really, I really love that record. Um, I wish they kept my mixes, but, um, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I'd be curious to actually, do you have your mixes? As, yeah. Man, yeah. They exist. I would be they're so much more guitar forward. They're more like, yeah. I think they're more like they're in, for me, they're more fun. They're more like sort of, like early Weezer influenced and less sure. like less, less, less pop influenced. Yeah. Not less, no less, less vocal focused. You know what's okay. Here's a fun fact about that record. Um, like Barry's real interested in, um, like how the, te- how, how vocals feel at different tempos. Right. And e- every single song on that record is like between 119 and 121 BPM. Like oh, there wow. he's just like he's real into 120. Like that's where like he writes most of his songs and singing feels best to him at yeah. 120. There was one song the name of it I'm, I'm spacing on, but there was one song on that record that it was like 160 or 180 or something like that. It was like an up tempo song and um and then he was like, you know, I also want to try like an acoustic version of that song, just, you know, just for shits. And um, let's try it a little slower. <laughs> we ended up doing the acoustic version at 120. And then that's the version that he kept for the album. Oh, and wow. There's like a, I forget the name of the song, but there's like a rock version of it that I did. I did mix um, that's like, like 160. That's, that's oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if you know, but you know that Barry and Matt were in a band with Elliot in high school. I did. Yeah. 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 Actually I went through like your, like your whole history with, uh, with Clayton on that last tour we did. Oh yeah. 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 Like the, uh, the tour we did with, with entry. Totally. Totally. Um, I wanted to ask about, so the last 
record for Converge that you um, weren't the sole producer on was Jane Doe. And I don't think I've ever asked you guys or asked you what it was about Matthew Ellard that brought you to him. Like when I look at his discography, I'm curious what the record or what the interest was that made you be like, oh, we should go to this guy. Cause he's done so much weird all over eclectic yeah. stuff like Motorhead, Juliana Hatfield, Wilco, you know? So I'm curious what it was that made you want to work with him. Well, there's a few things that we were considering with, with that record. I knew that I wanted to step up the production in some way and I wasn't quite sure how, you know, we actually had asked Andy Hong about doing it at one point. I think I had asked Steve Albini. I'd asked Bob Weston. Um, God, I'd be so really curious get, to hear some of those versions. Wow. We didn't really get like the sort of level of enthusiasm we were hoping for yeah. from any of those people. Um, but it was also, I was also just casting a wide net. Like if we had been in a situation where we could have gone out of town to record, like we, I don't remember this being in the discussion, but I can imagine we probably would have asked Steve Evitz because he was like the person like, at the time making all the records that we really loved. Yeah. Um, but going out of town to record wasn't an option. Ben was still in school. And for some reason we decided to record that album when he was in finals. <laughs> I don't remember why. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, so I basically started looking around at like, who are the best recording engineers in Boston? You know, and we also talked about doing with Andrew Schneider. Um, and maybe at new Alliance, but like, I don't know. I wanted to maybe like the idea of like working with someone who was a professional who had done a lot of diverse things, but also maybe would be working a little bit outside of their genre. Yeah. I thought could be a vehicle in order to craft a sound for our record that would be different than other people's records. So like if we had gone and recorded with Steve Evitz, like it probably would kick ass, but like it might sound like Dillinger escape plan. Totally. You know, uh, it might sound like buried alive. It might sound like, like, um, earth crisis or, you know, something like that, you know, and he was doing like all that, like, uh, or a lot of that, like heavy hitting victory stuff at the time. And I think we were like, we didn't want to be competitive with those bands. We just wanted to do our own thing. Yeah. And, um, by, by choosing someone sort of from outside, like choosing an outsider to work with, I think that that helped us do our own or helped ensure that whatever we did was going to be different than yeah. our, our peers. Um, Matt was probably the best qualified recording engineer with the most diverse background of uh, recording experience that there was in Boston at the time that, that we knew. Um, he was also the chief engineer at Q division, which is a really fantastic studio and he came highly recommended to us from the band overcast who you know we're we're friends with and um okay so, so he had worked oh, with them yeah he did a record with them that was okay. probably the closest thing to us i was um, curious like what he took from your music because that record's obviously so abrasive like did he get what you were going for you know i think he did to a certain extent i was also like i was not the engineer on most of that but i was the producer like yeah matt, matt might be you know for the how you credit how people are credited is kind of especially in music is kind of vague and like what the what producer means is kind of vague and he might be pre credited as a producer on that record i'm not sure but like i think i was i was I, at least i was project manager fair on, on yeah, that yeah, yeah. record and um you know so he was he was 
he wasn't passive, but I think he was following my lead in, in, Mm. in some ways. Um, uh, and I was probably second guessing a lot of his things because I was, I was at that time probably like the most annoying type of person to record. Who's like the person who knows enough to be dangerous. I'm curious what it went to then for you to do you fail me were you nervous about taking over like taking over completely and like what what type of things do you think uh you brought to that recording that maybe you didn't going forward maybe because you were you know you felt the pressure i i was not nervous about my chops or i was not afraid that i would fail as an engineer on that recording but i did want i was very um conscious of whether or not my bandmates had confidence in me Mm. to take over that role yeah and um especially because i you know i got paid for that by epitaph to do that record um it bought the pro tools rig that i used to to make that record but so it was reinvested but it was still like it was money from the converge advance that was going to me so i felt like it was really important that I was, I was engineering that record. I was the, that I was the best choice for us as the engineer for that record, not necessarily the best choice for for me as the engineer for that record. And I did feel like at that point in time and, and my bandmates were on board with this, thankfully, but I felt like at that time that like what I lacked for in recording chops, I made up for in the intensity of um, how invested I was in that music yeah. and that like I was going to put so much of myself into that recording that it, it, it made sense that I was the, the best choice to be the engineer on that record. And, you know, when we still uh, brought Matt in to mix it for the, the, yeah. the, the original mix too. And that was kind of what helped us sort of bridge the gap towards like me becoming the person that did all the production side of it. There was a, I can't remember if you told me, I think you did potentially we were talking about no heroes one time and I feel like maybe you told me, maybe Jake told me that like when the band members send you mixing notes, uh, everybody was just like, Hey, can you turn me up louder? So you just turned everybody up. So basically that's why the record sounds so like, it almost sounds like it would be clipping to someone who doesn't understand the world because it's so just like high energy, like distorted and that sort of a thing. Is any of that true? I don't remember it in that way. What I remember about the mixing of that record was that um, it kind of got remixed in mastering. So when I mixed that record, I made mastering stems. So basically like, you know, I mixed the, mixed the songs. And then when I was done mixing the song, I like muted everything except the drums and then made a drum mix and then muted everything except the bass, made a bass mix and, guitar and vocal. So we basically had four stems, a guitar stem, a drum stem, a bass stem, and a vocal stem. And maybe, maybe there was also an effect stem, um, that were just like, you know, four or five stereo submixes of each element of the mix. And then that is what ended up being used to master the record. So, um, Nick Zampiello at, um, new Alliance East was the one who mastered that album. That's the only converge album that was not mastered by Alan Douches. Um, 
And so Nick ended up using the stems and he ended up doing like further processing on the stems. Okay. Like I remember him using like some kind of like multiband transient designer thing on the drums to try to get the drums like snappier. And I don't, I don't know what else he did in the process, but like it gave him more like granular control over the elements of the mix, which sort of amounted to the master being a little bit of a remix of the, of the album. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And that's Uh, like a, you know, doing like stem mastering like that is potentially powerful and gives the mastering engineer a lot of extra control, but at the same time too, it like most mastering engineers don't like doing that because it's like offloading decisions on them that should be made during the mix process. Um, and I don't know if it was me or Nick or who that, that kind of pushed for that, but, uh, it's just what ended up happening. I think, I think that record, I was particularly hard on myself because that was the first like Converge album that I was mixing. Got it. Got it. And how, how do you feel about it now all these years later? Like, is there anything that you would have done differently? Um, no, I feel good about that one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't listened to it for a long time, but, um, people do talk about that one as being a record that sounds good. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the work that he did on it. Yeah. I mean, I fucking, it's, I, that, that record in particular, I feel like in your, in your catalog is the one that sounds just like so, so, so loud. Like it's like, like I think of that record as just a loud record, which is kind of funny considering you're a loud band just in general, but, but yeah, it's like, I feel the distortion in it and it's something that I just, you know, when, when I crave that specific sound, that's the, the record I reach for. Oh, okay, cool. Um, well, I'm going to hit you with the last question. All right, Kurt, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? Hmm. Probably quite a bit later than people might think. So I started recording in 95 and I'm going to say maybe around 2005, 2006 is when we did, no heroes. A big thing for me was sort of like, is this actually a viable career? And I, I had been assuming that I would be going back to work as an engineer at some point, even when I was building the current God city in 2003. Um, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be a full-time career for me. I just thought I would like live in an apartment that had a studio beneath it. And that I'd go to like, you know, mechanical or aerospace engineering during the day. And, but by 2006, um, got myself out of like the credit card debt that I had accumulated while building the studio and having no income. And, um, and then I was like mixing Converge records and recording Converge records and Converge was getting really busy. And by that point in time, like, I think we had kind of really established ourselves. And, um, so yeah, then, then I was off and it, it, it felt, um, it felt good. I super appreciate that. And that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Um, Kurt, you're someone who has uh, always been a huge influence. You're someone that um, I'm honored to call a friend, and I'm so excited that you got to do this. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, man. It's It's been a blast. Yeah, no problem. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. 
And that is our show. Thank you so much to Kurt for coming on. And thank you for listening. This show was edited, produced, and made to sound oh so great by my boy Ryan Rainbow, who did a great job last week on that Q&A, right? On that listener mailbag. Shout out to Ryan. Um, yeah, and reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now. If you hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Kurt answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this. All right, that's it for me. Take care of yourself. Be good. Bye-bye.